to welcome everyone to this month's episode of Peds Ortho. We are actually broadcasting live from the American Academy of Orthopedics meeting in beautiful San Diego, California. Um, we've got a, a good show for you guys today. Three of us are here and Carter, on the other hand, where are you, Carter? I am at beautiful Lake Claiborne, Louisiana, which is uh, in northern Louisiana and where we have evacuated to after Hurricane Ida. But we are all safe and accounted for and uh, hoping to get home soon, but can't complain about riding out the hurricane and all the chaos at a, uh, at a lake house. So it'd be worse. Well, Carter, keep you and your family safe, and we look forward to you getting back home as quickly and safely as you can. We'd also like to welcome to the program Julia Sanders, who is actually here in the room with me in beautiful San Diego, and we are excited to hear some of her thoughts and insights as we have a chance to discuss with our special guest today the topic at hand. So without further ado, we'd like to welcome to the program Dr. Rachel Goldstein, who practices here in California at the Orthopedic Center at CHLA, just a little ways up the road. So Dr. Goldstein, thanks again for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me. So as we will typically kick off the show, we'll do a little bit of getting to know you session. So being that you practice just up the road from here and you're down here in sunny San Diego, what is your favorite city in California? Oh, it's definitely still Los Angeles. Okay. That's why I live there. Okay. And what is your favorite thing to do in Los Angeles when you're not in the operating room? I'm a big runner, mostly trail running, but LA's got a lot of options. Perfect. And if you are stuck in the operating room late and you can't be out running, what music is going to be playing in your OR to help you vision yourself out on a trail running somewhere? That's an awesome question. I really like country music. Perfect. I get a lot of beef for country music in my OR, so that's good to hear. I do too, but I don't care that much. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, we appreciate you joining us on the program today. Thank you. And what we're going to talk about mostly today is your article that's in this month's episode of, what are we in? Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics. Um, and we'll talk through this a little bit and branch off some um, and get your thoughts and impressions as well as uh, Carter's and Julia's as we go through that. So the article is entitled, An Inverted Acetabular Labrum is Predictive of Pavlic Harness Treatment Failure in Children with Developmental Hip Dysplasia. Um, and as the title appropriately states, um, it's primarily looking at ultrasound evidence of an inverted acetabular labrum and the success that you guys found at your center over 12 years um, in treating those patients with initially a pavlic harness. So I guess first and foremost, what was it that prompted this study and you guys to look back at all of your patients? Um, well, I'm very interested in who has a successful outcome with pavlic harness treatment. And um, there have been a lot of studies trying to figure out who's going to do well with a pavlic and who's not. And I just happened to catch a radiology read that mentioned something about an inverted labrum. And I was like, I didn't even know you could see that on an ultrasound. So I called up one of my favorite radiology attendings. I had them go over it with me. And we started pulling more and more charts and seeing that this actually was a pattern. Um, and there's only a couple studies that have really even talked about this. 
So we felt like this was a good opportunity for us to look back at our patients and see what we could find. Yeah, and that's interesting because that was my very first thought of I've never seen a read of an inverted labrum, nor have I specifically looked for one on an ultrasound. I'm curious, is that something, Julia Carter, that you guys commonly see that your radiologists comment on or that you specifically look for? All right, so let's go with Julia. Julia's here joining <laughs> us from Colorado. Julia, what do you think? Yeah, um, so that I, the answer is no for me, and I, that was actually going to be my question for you, Dr. Goldstein, is, is, you know, to an untrained eye and to somebody who may not be looking for these or know to look for them, you know, how do you make sure that you catch these? Because I certainly didn't come into this thinking, oh, yeah, I see this all the time, or, yeah, I can totally pick that out in the, you know, in my in-office ultrasound. So uh, I, this is definitely not something that I, that I have previously looked for or, or known, known to be a thing. Well, you kind of really set up my second study on this, which is, can pediatric orthopedists be trained to look for this inverted labrum, given that it's so associated with pelvic harness failure? Um, a lot of us are doing in-office ultrasounds. Um, we may not have a radiologist over-reading our ultrasounds. And so can, can we learn to do this? Can we learn to find this? I feel like we can. We're pretty smart people and we're pretty good with ultrasound. Um, so my next study is going to be looking at training trainees and attendings for looking for that. Excellent. Sign me up. <laughs> Carter, I'm sure you looked at your new baby's hips under ultrasound. Um, how did their labri look? Oh, he's perfect. Head to toe. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny that we're talking about this. I actually, for the first time, uh, had a radiologist mention this in a read also in a severely dysplastic patient um, who did then go on to fail their three weeks of pavlic harness. But uh, yeah, really, really glad you're bringing this to everyone's attention and teaching us about it. So next question, Dr. Goldstein, is in your study, looking back, um, failure rates with the public that are comparable to reported rates. And, and, you know, there's a study that I remember and actually refreshed from Turkey from JCO from 2018. I had to look it back up, but I remember because it it's kind of a review article and they talked about all the different things and reviewed several different studies in a pretty broad sense and really showed that the rates of success or failure with pavlic harnesses all over the board, um, depending on age, depending on if you're looking what type of dysplasia, dislocated versus dysplastic, et cetera. So I'm curious, you know, your, your failure rate, how do you feel like it compares to others? Is, do you feel like that's a fair representation of what you expected or what you see clinically? Um, it's definitely higher than what I normally quote to parents. And I think it's somewhat reflective of the kind of practices that we all have, which is that we are tertiary care referral centers. So there are community pediatric orthopedists who may initiate pavlic harness and CHLA may not see those kids until they are failing or have failed pavlic harness. So I think that while it seems to be higher than what I generally quote, I think it's reflective of that referral pattern. Yeah, so, so does your newfound knowledge of your numbers change what you're talking with parents about and maybe not painting such a bright picture of success with the public? Um, I still paint a positive picture because for the most part, pavlic harness works really, really well. And it's not a benign thing to put a pavlic on for new parents. I mean, Carter, you have a brand new baby, so you, you, know, you understand this, but parents get very upset. And so... 
it helps with compliance. And I think that we're shifting just in general from what I've been seeing lately as we've been getting more and more patients. I think that that number is probably a little skewed. So I still go paint the rosy picture. Yeah. So just to get into the study a little bit. So essentially what you showed was 91% of patients who had an inverted labrum on ultrasound failed to pavlic. And then only about 5% of them had resolution or, or improvement of their hips with fixed abduction orthoses, leaving 86% of them still requiring some sort of operative management with closer open reduction and significantly higher than the non-inverted labrum group, which was 27%. So that's a, that's a daunting number to think that 90% of these kids with an inverted labrum are not going to succeed with any type of bracing, essentially. Is that change what you do in your results and discussion? You mentioned that maybe that should change our algorithm or change some of the thoughts that we have with these patients. So I'm curious is, is how has it changed your thoughts? Uh, if I see an inverted labrum on that initial ultrasound, uh, I will, it, it guides how I counsel parents. I, it's still worth trying the public and it's still worth trying the hip abduction orthosis um, for that small percentage that it does work in. But I, start setting up our next steps much more quickly um, and thinking about it much more quickly. And then I'm looking for that also when I'm doing my closed versus open reduction in the operating room. Great. And, and how quickly do you move along? So, and this is a little bit of a loaded question. The, the four of us had a text thread going just a couple of weeks ago about one of our patients who had felt reduction still remained dislocated with the public and questioning how soon is too soon to take them to the OR for open versus closed reduction? Um, maybe approach that may or may not change depending on the age of the patient if they're really young or old. So curious to get your thoughts on what your algorithm is. You failed Pavlik, you failed fixed abduction. What What's your age range or what do you do next? I So I generally... For most kids, I give them four weeks in the Pavlik, two weeks, check, adjust, give them two more weeks. If that fails, then at that visit, I'll start the rigid hip abduction orthosis. Um, and at that point, I'm already starting to talk to them about next steps. Two, usually two weeks for most patients. Um, and if I don't see any improvement at all in the two weeks, then planning for the operating room. Um, in general, I don't think there's a lower age limit that you can take kids for a closed versus open reduction, but our kids tend to be sort of at youngest by the time they get through that process. It tends to be youngest as like three, four months old uh, and, you know, we'll go up as high as we need to. Good, good. That's the right answer. Three <laughs> to four months. <laughs> Perfect. And does your approach change? So are you an intermedial modified approach or are you anterolateral? What, how do you approach these hips and does age matter in that younger age group? So I have to be very honest. I was never trained in a medial approach. So age doesn't matter to me. I spent most of my uh, Boston hip fellowship trying to get in on some medial approaches. And I will tell you that I was oh for eight attempts in trying to see one. So no medial approach for me. <laughs> and anything you look for intra-ops that changes again if you know you have one of these inverted labrum on ultrasound is there something different you do at the time of open reduction or closed reduction is are you particularly critical of your arthrogram or what do you do differently in the OR so there's nothing that I do differently in the OR except like emotionally prepare myself more likely for an open reduction 
I very, I have very distinct memories of when I saw my first inverted labrum on a closed reduction. And it happened to be that Woody Sankar was visiting us and he was in the OR with me. And, you know, we started talking about it and he said, well, it's worth a try because we could kind of get it stable. And that is the one hip that came out like two weeks after and I had to take back for an open. So <laughs> now I'm even You didn't more... put them on a plane and send them to, to Philadelphia? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> We thought it might not work, but worth a try. Carter or Julia, any thoughts that you guys have about that approach? Is that similar to what you guys have done? It is. You know, I always go back and forth about how early is too early. Um, and the traditional teaching that I think a lot of us got was six months, you know, wait till six months and then go to the OR. Um, so, Dr. Goldstein, one thing I've thought about a lot is, should we be going earlier and trying close reduction? And then if we failed, should we always be ready to do open reduction on the spot? Or if they're only three months, should we come back a couple months later for the open reduction part? And I'm gathering from what you're saying, you always are ready to do that open reduction, even if they're only say three months old. I'm always ready to do the open reduction. And in my mind, there's, you know, there's a lot of back and forth in the literature of what the right, what the minimum age should be for open reduction but Dr. Tolo taught me that you should always be prepared for an open reduction when you go for closed. And in these little guys, if I can minimize the number of times they undergo anesthesia, I'm going to do it every time. Yeah. And I, I would second that. That's certainly what, what I learned with Dr. Weinstein at Iowa during residency and have kind of continued doing there. Um, you know, you mentioned Dr. Sankar and when we had, a, I had an interview with him on the program several months ago and he talked about some of the stuff they're doing with the 3d ultrasound mm -hmm. to be honest i've never seen or done or have any experience with that i'm curious if you have um any experience that you personally have done or can we see this much better are we going to even in your picture in your article you know that inverted labrum to me is still something i don't know that i would <laughs> see or notice so i'm curious if it's in 3d can we see it better um, I don't have a lot of personal experience with the 3D ultrasound. Uh, Dr. Matheny had started playing around with it when I was a fellow at Boston. And I know he's been working very closely with Dr. Sankar, but it's it's been all I can do to get ultrasound in my clinic at this point. So I think 3D is like a long way off for, for my practice, at least. How about you two? Either of you guys done any with the 3D? I have not. I haven't either. I'm super intrigued by it. I, I hope that uh, we might check it out from sort of a research and QI uh, perspective in our hospital, but not yeah, yet. Yeah, it seems like a, a logical next step in visualizing these and not just getting a single one-dimensional slice through a hip, um, making a lot of treatment decision based on that single slice, three dimensions, seems like a, a logical next step. Um, I will make a plug on that note for doing ultrasound or at least observing your ultrasounds getting done because you do get a better sort of three-dimensional picture than just the slices that your tech takes. Um, and that is part of the reason why I switched to doing them in my clinic so that I could actually watch. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And then my last question for you on this, on this paper in particular there's several risk factors or several factors that play into whether people are going to fail pavlic harness. Again, talking about age that you start it being one and, you know, maybe three months is a, is a threshold. Um, talking about abduction and, you know, if they have contractures and things already. Talking about inverted labrum. In your estimation, does one of those trump all others or is it still still too early to know if there's one particular 
problem that's going to lead to failure? I think that at least the numbers that we saw, inverted labrum really is so strongly associated with failure. Um, I know there's a lot of association with age, and that's another big issue. How late can you start public? Um, but I think the numbers are, it's really impressive how much an inverted labrum influenced outcomes here. Yeah. Yeah. You're, the numbers you guys have are, I am going to be looking for these. And we have a radiologist who primarily does all these ultrasounds. And certainly I'm just based on these numbers, going to speak with him and see if, uh, if we can maybe try and get a better look and based on what we can find, hopefully get some more numbers on this and see if there's, you know, you guys talking in the discussion, maybe there's a different way, a different protocol, a different, a different way to try and get better than, you know, 9% success on these kids with these yeah. inverted labrum. Yeah, I've got a question for you, Rachel, um, which may be sort of a chicken and egg <laughs> philosophical question, but, and, and you discuss it a little bit in your paper, but what's your opinion on how this happens? You know, does the labrum invert because there's a, there's a higher correlation between graft four hips and patients with inverted labrums. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is it, you know, does the labrum invert because the acetabulum is deficient or is the labrum inverted causing the acetabulum to be deficient? What do you think is the, the etiology? What's the interplay there that's happening in utero? I think it's hard to tell what's happening. Um, and my feelings about what what's going on are somewhat related to what I've seen on Arthrogram. And that is that the inverted labrum is actually blocking that hip from getting in. But I honestly, you're right. It's a chicken or egg question. I'm not entirely sure. And my experience and feelings on it are based on like one Arthrogram. Yeah. I told you I only had one question. That was a lie, though. So I've seen, <laughs> I've had a couple of these um, that you can see that labrum just inverted and flattened when you go and you open mm -hmm. them. And when I see that, and again, not extensive numbers, but I always open the capsule even more and really get down medial and really get kind of any stricture of the capsule and just make sure that it's totally, totally free so that you can get that head up and around and hopefully start reshaping. I'm curious, is that that's something I don't know that I've ever been taught as much as just in there. It seems like you really want to bring that head way far forward to get over and around that labrum. I'm curious if, if you guys interop have noticed anything like that, that you're really trying to do a bigger, bigger capsulotomy and open things more. I think in general, I'm just pretty aggressive with my capsulotomy. I really work to get down as far medial and as far down as I can, because if I feel even the littlest bit of TAL, I know that I'm in trouble. And anytime I've ever had to go back after an open reduction or that has failed, it's been because the TAL is still present. So the labrum doesn't play as much in for me there. Carter, what are your thoughts? Well, I actually had a sort of similar question. I was, I think, thinking along the same lines as Josh. Um, but Dr. Goldstein, I just wanted to sort of pick your brain. A lot of times we've talked through certain cases and stuff. And um, I was just wondering if there are other sort of pearls or pitfalls or things you typically tell your trainees about these, uh, you know, very young uh, open reductions that you've learned uh, so far in your practice. Um, so oftentimes I will tell them there's no small incision with this. You really have to get down medial. You really have to get that TAL and you should be able to slide your finger out of the bottom of the acetabulum to really make sure that that's cleared off. I also teach them about the suction sign of K. So 
Dr. K um, told me once when I was a fellow that when your acetabulum is completely cleared out, if you stick your finger in it, when you pull your finger out, it should make a suction sound. And so that for me indicates a nice cleaned out acetabulum. We haven't formalized the name yet, but that's that's what I've named it. Yeah, yeah you have all your fellows like like slurping out inside of their mask to make sure. <laughs> <Yeah. they're in> <laughs> exactly. Cool. So Great struggle points. when they have really big hands. It's like, nope, just use your small finger. It's fine. <laughs> Very good. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a good study that um, has pretty good numbers and shows pretty poor success with these inverted um, labrums. So I think number one is looking for them more for me is really the take home point. Number two is just having a different mindset. I think maybe not giving the family the real confident, you know, 90 plus percent success, but maybe, maybe having a little bit less optimism that it's going to be successful with the Pavlik, but still trying it. I think, like you said, with your algorithm and giving it a chance as a go. So thank you very much. That's again, I think we'll open up a door to a lot of new research to hopefully have better success with treating these kids with bad hips. Next, let's go to the lightning round. So um, we've picked a few articles um, out of a few different journals this month that all ask a pretty straightforward question and we'll just go through them. So Julie, if you wanna head that off. Yeah, for sure. So the first one we're gonna talk about is a paper from JPO out of Norway that looked at whether the femoral head shaft angle is a predictor of hip displacement in children with CP. So the literature has been a bit contradictory about this. There's some papers that say it doesn't predict it and other papers that say it do. So what, what do you guys think? What's your, you know, does the head shaft angle in kids under five predict whether those hips are going to go out or not? This is measured on the x-ray? Yeah, on the, on the first x-ray you get when they're, when they're a little one, two or three years old. I'm going to go with no. I think that's just so confounded by rotation that it, it can't mean that much. Good point. What about Rachel or Josh? I was going to say what Carter said. It's so confounded by rotation, especially in that patient population. Yeah. I know the study, so I won't yeah, say Yeah, no cheating. Yeah, so you guys are right. So the study found that femoral head shaft angle is not a predictor of hip displacement. Um, and so I'll just give you a little synopsis of the study because I think it was actually quite well done. So they looked at all their kids in their surveillance program in Norway under five with GMFCS um, three through five and evaluated the first radiographs taken compared to the last radiograph taken. And um, the mean head shaft angle at initial radiograph was 171. Uh, there were no associations between primary head shaft angle, so that was the first one taken, and GMFCS level. The mean migration percentage at initial radiograph was about 17%. And at that point, the migration percentage was less than 40 in, in about half of the hips and more than 40 in about half the hips. And when they looked at final migration percentage, again, there was no significant difference in primary head shaft angle. But what I think is, is interesting and, and does correlate with the other literature out there is that the final head shaft angle was significantly larger in hips with migration percentage more than 40%. Um, and also significantly larger in patients with GMFCS5 compared to the other levels. So that correlates. And so I think that what, what this still tells us is that we still don't know exactly what, what are good, solid, predictive signs for which kids are going to go out. Anyway, good little lightning round one there. And then we can go ahead and move on to the second one. So the next one is um, from JPA out of CHOP, looking at the risk of pathologic fracture in non-ossifying fibroma lesions of the distal tibia. 
So what do you guys tell your patients that come in with a distal tibia NOF? What, what do you think the risk of fracture is in that location specifically? I'll go first. I mean, I would probably tell them certainly low single percentile percentage. I think it's a relatively low risk, but I'm stumped. Yeah. Carter, any thoughts? Um, so, yeah, I think it's very low being a, when it's a metaphyseal lesion. And I usually think of it in terms of how many cortices are involved, but um, I will stop. Yep. Hold so on. You guys are, difficulties. These are all wrong, and Heather <laughs> is right to stop because this is actually the highest of any location of NOF pathologic fracture that they had. So it was actually 29.7% incidence of fracture, which is crazy. Wow. And obviously, they're looking at a specific patient population here, but um, it, it's really great study. So they, they looked at all distal tibia NOFs, including those found incidentally. 36% of the patients that fractured were symptomatic before their fracture, but came in with symptoms of an ankle sprain. And none of the fractures were caused by a high energy mechanism. And so then they looked at kind of specific risk fractures and um, or risk factors for fracture. And what they found was that the location of the lesion was not a significant risk factor. So metaphyseal, metadiaphyseal, diaphyseal didn't matter. Um, the lateral location was a significant predictor of fracture. And in fact, all of the fractures involved lateral lesions. Um, length, width, and percentage of the bone were all predictors of fracture. And then there's a, something called the, the Ritchell stage, um, which basically estimates the amount of sclerosis in the lesion with less sclerosis predicting fracture. So there's a couple other things too that I, I think I would really recommend everybody that listens to this podcast, take a look at this paper because it's got some great pictures in it too. But they talk about the syndesmosis sign where the syndesmotic ligaments insert into an abnormal area of tibial cortex, as well as a Pac-Man sign where the distal tibia actually remodels in a convex way around the syndesmosis, or excuse me, a concave way around the syndesmosis. So it's got great pictures, um, but based on their findings, the authors proposed a scoring system, which gives points for Rischel stage B, which is minimal sclerosis, uh, lesion greater than 50% of the diameter of the bone, presence of cortical thinning, um, a lesion greater than 50% of the bone on the lateral as well as the AP, um, and then cortical thinning on the lateral as well as the AP. And so scores with zero to two are a low risk lesion. You know, they're small, they can probably be managed very conservatively. Um, routine follow-up is not required, but lesions with a score of four to five, um, the authors actually suggest that this is a high enough risk uh, pattern that you should curatage and bone graft these prophylactically, um, which is kind of a change in management, I think, for probably most of us for these distal tibia lesions. And then um, lesions with a score of three, they recommend that those um, get advanced imaging so that you can look for that syndesmosis sign or the Pac-Man sign and help help decide where to go there. But definitely a higher risk of fracture than I had con considered previously and definitely going to make me take these a little bit more seriously. So, And I had some technical difficulties there, but what I was saying was that uh, I just thought the Pac-Man sign was so cool. Everyone should go and look at that picture. But uh, when we were choosing sort of what articles to promote on social media... Anytime one has a really cool picture, it's definitely going out on Posnus Twitter and Instagram accounts. And the Pac-Man sign was a no-brainer. So it's for sort of like this lesion. Good press in Posna. Make sure you have a cool picture and a cool name like Pac-Man sign. Hundred <laughs> <100%. laughs> percent. So the next one is out of Japan. It's in spine, and it's looking at effects of fusion of lanky five, so lumbar curves, and does that fusion have any impact on the cervical spine? 
So when you're doing a lanky five curve, do you think once, twice, three times, or zero times about the cervical spine? Carter, we'll start with you. I think it, I would think it would have an effect. I think it really jacks up your sagittal profile and in the bad ones, probably that translates all the way up to the cervical spine. And I would hope those would get better after you uh, fix the rest of the sagittal profile. Okay. Anyone else? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on this one since I try to think about the cervical spine as little as possible, unless I'm clearing a C-spine to do something else. So. <laughs> if I'm doing anything with the spine, we're all in trouble. <laughs> so what they showed is that um, certainly if you do anything above T9, so if your upper instructed vertebrae is T9 or above, then it certainly does. And they followed them out for five years. And as long as you stay below that, there, although there are some changes initially, there's no significant change with cervical spine alignment um, after up to five years. So as long as you're staying T10 or below, it shouldn't have any major effect on cervical spine alignment. So are they seeing these are patients with a lanky five curve who have abnormal cervical spine alignment to start with, like they've got cervical kyphosis and it doesn't get better, or are they just trying to reassure and say, you're not going to give them some sort of malalignment from your lanky five fusion? Um, repeat your question. Are, so you're asking if their alignment's off before surgery or if you're causing it? Yeah. What was sort of the perspective of this paper? Was it like these patients have uh, a lanky five curve, which is giving them a loss of lumbar lordosis, and yeah. as a result, uh, they have some cervical kyphosis? And is that going to get better, or is it more like they have an okay C-spine and you're not going to mess it up by... Yes. So, realigning so, their so both. Lumbar so they, they did have a significant difference in cervical spine alignment pre-op, but that did not significantly change post-op. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So they're, they're accommodating their lumbar changes and you don't have a significant impact on that with your surgery for better or worse. Okay. And then we'll go to one more here. This is for you mostly, Dr. Goldstein. So this is Pablo Castaneda's study in clinical orthopedics and related research this month. And their question was, what is the inter-observer inter reliability of ultrasound enhanced physical exam of the hip and infants? A prospective study on the ease of acquiring skills in the diagnosis of hip dysplasia. So thoughts on inter-observer reliability of ultrasound enhanced physical exam. Um, is that something that's helpful that can be learned? And kind of your question is, can orthopedic residents, fellow staff, learn how to do a good ultrasound and look for an inverted labrum? What do you think? Is there a good inter-observer reliability? So I think acquiring ultrasound skills is not something that's generally taught in an orthopedic residency. And I can't speak to the ease of doing it because I don't do them myself. I still have an ultrasound tech who is doing it for me. Pablo's practice is very different in that he's doing his own ultrasounds and he's extremely talented at doing that. Um, but I very much appreciate the ultrasound as an adjunct to my physical exam. Okay, Julie, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would hope that it's a pretty good inter-observer reliability because we rely on this modality so much. And uh, one of my first memories of fellowship was we did an ultrasound clinic, you know, and I can't remember. Some, one of the previous fellows brought in their baby and we just messed around with them. And, um, you know, it was 
it was in some ways harder than I anticipated, but also made a lot of sense once you got your hands on it. And I don't routinely do this in practice, but I, I think it would be, I think it, there's certainly a learning curve, but I, I would hope that it, the observer reliability is high. Carter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think it'd be not perfect, but acceptable among uh, people who have climbed that learning curve. Yeah, so you guys are exactly right. So what they did in this study is that they had um, an experienced clinical trained examiner um, train three people in ultrasound evaluation of neonates. So a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, a resident, and a pediatrician. And it was a two-hour training process that included some clinical didactic session as well as video and kind of teaching how to do it, distinguishing between stable and unstable hips um, and such. And what they showed was that after this two-hour course that, um, that all three physicians, they were able to understand and reliably examine children to assess for DDH. So, you know, again, bringing the question in, training to do it in office, training to look for some of these other things, inverted labrum, et cetera, learning how to, to do a 3D ultrasound when and if your institution has those capabilities. I think it's just willingness to, to take the time. And in, in, in Pablo's study, it's, it was a two-hour course. So it's not a, a huge commitment to kind of learn how to do these and efficiently and uh, effectively be able to evaluate baby SIPs. Cool. So that's all I have. So um, really very much appreciate Dr. Goldstein visiting us on the program today, especially here in San Diego where the sun is out and it's nice outside. Um, <laughs> All of our listeners, we thank you all for your involvement. Um, we have now surpassed the 50 episode um, in production and have had over 30,000 downloads. So all good markers. We hope to continue to grow and, and reach a wider audience and continue to bring conversation and topics that you guys are interested in. So any comments that you have, criticisms, critiques, compliments, you can send those to Carter's Twitter because as we learned in the last episode, He's, he's the most efficient tweeter in the group. Uh, I would say Craig has definitely surpassed me. Com, I believe. Yep, that's true. The email address, Craig and I are on Twitter, and uh, Julia and Josh, I, I think, are going to get snail mail soon. They're, they're catching up. We're that's getting there. Perfect. Dr. Goldstein, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. This was great. Bye, guys. This was fun, guys. Thank you.